Romans 7, verses 7 through 12 is our text for today. This is the 35th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans was written by a missionary. One of the reasons why the author, the Apostle Paul, wrote it was so as to raise some money for his missionary endeavor to Spain. Um, the heart of God is missions, and therefore what you should sincerely do is pray and ask the Lord whether or not he wants you to be a foreign missionary. If he does not, there's one thing for sure that we know that he does want you to do. And that is, he wants you to help spread the gospel around the world by helping to send missionaries. Today's message is 38 handwritten pages, and the title of today's message is Mulishness. Turn, please, to Romans chapter 7. As you turn there, remember that God loves you and hear the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Father in heaven, today as we consider our relationship to the law, Lord, I pray that we in no way will think that the law is bad, but that we will see it for what it is, that it is good. But Lord, through the law, I pray that we will see that we are bad. And Lord, when we see that, I hope that we will then immediately see that you are good. And so Lord, show us our badness, show us your goodness. Lord, lead us to Christ for our remedy today. For he is our only remedy. We pray in his name. Amen. Our final destination today is a place called the law is good. Our final destination today is a place called the law is good. Now, we are going to attempt to travel to that location together, hand in hand and step by step. However, should we along the way get separated, either because I am confusing in what I say, or you are daydreaming, or for any other reason, should we lose one another, Please meet me in about an hour at a place called The Law is Good, Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Now, why in the world does Paul feel compelled to get his readers to that spot? Well, probably because he had said some things up to this point in the book of Romans, which possibly could have led someone, albeit mistakenly, but nevertheless led someone to the conclusion that the law of Moses is bad. Now, before we get into the rationale, just let me put a few words of clarification up front. First of all, I'm going to be saying a lot today 
about the law, that is the law of Moses. It's what God gave to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. And it includes, but is not limited to the Ten Commandments. A second word of clarification for this morning, and this one is much more nuanced and a little bit more theological, and that is I am going to be explaining today the role that the law of Moses played on the heart of Paul, the author of the book of Romans, not necessarily the role of the law that it plays on the Christian today. Now, I'm not saying that the law is today in any way antiquated, I'm saying in some ways it is abrogated and therefore it is not necessarily the standard for the Christian because remember what Paul said back in Romans chapter 6 verse 14 that we are not under the law but we are under grace. Uh, what we're going to be looking at today is not the prescription for how we are to use the law, it is an autobiography of how it was used in Paul's life. Well, with that said, with those clarifications out there, let's look at the rationale as to why Paul thinks that he needs to explain that the law is not bad. And we're going to do it by doing a quick Bible study of 10 verses in the book of Romans where Paul seemingly might have been saying that the law is bad. He wasn't saying that, but someone could get that impression from the following statements. And let's make our way through what Paul has said about the law so far in the book of Romans. First of all, in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So we see right off the bat that the law is a strict judge. Same chapter, chapter 2, verse 25, Paul says, circumcision indeed is of value if and only if you obey the law. So circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant, could that possibly be voided out? Uh, Paul is the reason why it would be voided out because of something that is done by the law. Let's skip over to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable or guilty before God. So the law is designed to shut you up. Maybe it's not such a good thing. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So the law has no saving power. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, since the law doesn't seem to add anything, what is the purpose of it at all? Romans chapter 4, verse 13, using Abraham as an example, he says that the promise that he, Abraham, would be heir of the world did not come through the law. So, it didn't help Abraham. Romans four fifteen, the law brings wrath. Self-explanatory. Romans 5.20, the law came to increase the trespass. So actually, law makes things worse. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, you are not under law. Well, therefore, the law is irrelevant. And then last week, we looked at Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law and that we're at work in our members to bear fruit to death. The law is the gasoline that you put on the fire. 
So again, there are 10 verses. And, and if you're keeping score here in Romans and you're, you're paying attention as this is being read and, and it is being studied in the church at Rome, uh, you are seeing that Paul is clearly speaking about some deficiencies of the law. And Paul understands that it is very possible, even likely, that someone in that congregation could conclude that the law in and of itself is bad that the law is our problem, and that the law is sin in and of itself. And so in anticipation of that misunderstanding, he says, I know what you're thinking, and you're wrong. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. By no means. No way. Certainly not. May it never be. I can't go for that, no can do, by no means. We can never say that the law of Moses is sin. Now, theoretically, we could stop right here because we have such an emphatic answer. But Paul is not content to just say no. He goes on to construct an argument that proves his point that the law is good and that the law is not bad. Um, so let me reiterate what I said earlier. Um, let's just say for the sake of argument, for some reason, I don't explain his rationale clearly and or let's say you aren't interested in his rationale and or for some other reason, we get separated. Remember, I need you to meet me at verse 12, which says the law is good. But for now... Um, join me as we follow the yellow brick road in 7b through 11, which is Paul's argument or his rationale as to why the law is in and of itself not sin. Paul is going to do something in this passage which he has not done before in the book of Romans. He is going to use himself as a personal illustration. He's been using illustrations all along. Back in chapter 4, he used Abraham as an illustration. Chapter 5, he used Adam as an illustration. Chapter 6, he used slavery as an illustration. And then in chapter 7, he used marriage as an illustration. Slavery and marriage, pretty much the same thing. It's a joke. And they laughed. Relax. I'm kidding. Relax. 38 years. You're fine. It's, it's not slavery. And now here in chapter 7, he's going to use himself as an illustration. And he gets very specific, and he gets very personal. It says in 7b, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. Now, this is not meant to be taken as an absolute truth. He's speaking relatively here. In other words, he is not saying that the only way that you can learn about sin or be aware of sin is through the law. Uh, we know that's true because Paul himself in Romans chapter 1, in writing about Gentiles, uh, speaks of them, those who have no knowledge of the law of Moses. He says that they are what? That they are without excuse. That, that the outward evidence of creation and the inward testimony of the conscience tells every human being that there is a difference between right and wrong, whether they have the law or not. 
So Paul does not mean that you need the law of Moses in order to know the difference between right and wrong. What he does mean here in verse 7 is that the law defines and it amplifies and it exposes just how wrong the sin is and who the sin is against. You see, a sin simply means to miss the mark. God's standard is perfection. When we do not reach perfection, we are missing the mark, and that is sin. A transgression, however, is different than a sin. A transgression is worse. A transgression is where the rule is clearly spelled out and posted, and you fully understand it, and yet you choose defiantly to disobey it. I remember several years ago, we were driving from New York to Georgia. We were driving through Virginia in the middle of the night. My entire family was asleep. I was having trouble staying awake. I needed something to eat. We pulled off at an exit somewhere in Virginia, and uh, apparently I blew past a stop sign in order to get to a restaurant. A state trooper pulled me over, and he came up to me and he was speaking to me and he said, did you see that stop sign back there? And I said, sir, I've been driving for a very long time and I'm, I'm very hungry. I was just looking for something to eat. And he said, do you mean to tell me that you were so famished that you were incapable of seeing that stop sign? Uh, I laughed. He let me go. But his point was well taken. There's a difference between not seeing the stop sign and going through it, which is still a crime. Ignorance of the law is not an excuse. And knowing it's there and defiantly just going through it. So what the law does, it clearly spells out what the standard is. You fully understand it, and yet you choose to defiantly disobey it. And Paul says, as a result of knowing the law, I came to know exactly how bad my sin was. And he could have stopped right there, but he chooses to reveal more about his own heart and his own experience. And he gets very specific again in verse seven. And he says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What is coveting? Well, it is the 10th of the 10 commandments. It is an inner desire or a want for what belongs to someone else. It it is discontentment. It breeds envy and jealousy. Uh, it, It is an unlawful longing in your heart to possess what God has not ordained for you to have. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question 80 is what is the 10th commandment? And the answer is the 10th commandment requires full contentment with our own condition with a right and charitable frame of mind and spirit toward your neighbor and all that is his. So what's the 10 commandment? Well, simply put, it's to want what somebody else has in an unlawful way. Now, once again, I need to clarify what Paul is not saying here. He is not saying that in his religious instruction prior to his bar mitzvah, that somehow his parents and the rabbis only taught him nine of the Ten Commandments, and that thou shalt not covet the Tenth Commandment, the final commandment in the Decalogue, was somehow not part of his early education. 
Paul is not saying here, I was sick that day. And strangely enough, throughout my time of all of my religious instruction as a Pharisee, I was unaware that that command even existed. He's not saying that at all. No, as a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, who was circumcised on the eighth day, he knew the law of Moses inside and out, and he knew the 10th commandment. So how in the world can he say, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul is saying here, I didn't get it until I got it. I didn't get it until I got it. Uh, Tom Schreiner, who has written a commentary on the book of Romans, writes this. Paul speaks of the time when the law impinged on his consciousness. One can receive moral instruction when young, and yet the meaning and import of such moral norms may not strike home. End quote. And duh. Yeah, that's right. Think about it. Every parent can relate to this. You know exactly what he's talking about, and you know that it's true. You have taught your children the word of God. They can probably recite it back to you with pinpoint accuracy. Yet it's very clear that it has not touched their hearts at all. You don't get it until you get it. Furthermore, I would just say, don't look at your children, just look at yourself. You'll have to admit that there was a day when you knew and understood the law of God intellectually, yet it didn't touch you. It didn't move you. It didn't convict you. It didn't correct you. You don't get it until you get it. It didn't impinge, as Schreiner says, on your consciousness. Now, some people might object to this and say, wait a minute. Paul describes his pre-conversion life in Philippians chapter 3, and when he does so, he speaks of himself as being a very religious and devout person. Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul says of his pre-conversion state, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Therefore, he knew the law and he kept the law. Well, everything that Paul writes about himself in Philippians 3 is true. But notice what he is saying here. He is not saying that he is sinless. He is saying that he was blameless, which means that you could look at him and see what was there on the outside and you couldn't bring a charge against him. And everything that Paul writes about himself in Philippians 3 is outward conformity to the law. It's very possible to look really good on the outside. In fact, the Pharisees were professionals at that. Listen very carefully here. This is why Paul chooses coveting as the sin which God used to break him of his self-righteous facade. Here's the question. Why did Paul choose coveting as the sin which the law used to expose his condition? The answer is, because coveting is the only one of the Ten Commandments which deals exclusively with the heart and exclusively with the mind. You see something which belongs to another person. 
You know that God has not ordained for you to have that. And yet you covet without changing the expression on your face. In fact, you can even smile as you see what the other person has. You can even verbally congratulate them on what they have. And you can speak to other people about how happy you are that that other person has that thing. But inside, you desperately want what they have. Inside, you are full of envy and jealousy. That is coveting. And you can do it secretly. Paul tells us in Ephesians and in Colossians exactly what covetousness is at its very heart. First of all, Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then he defines covetousness and he says, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Almost the same thing over in Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Paul gives instructions here and he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Hang on to that thought. And then he says in 3.6, on account of these, covetousness included, the wrath of God is coming. Three observations here about Paul's definition of covetousness. First of all, have you noticed that in the context of him describing covetousness, It is in a list of sexual sins, and therefore, some people think that Paul's struggle with covetousness in Romans 7 was lust, and I would say perhaps or even probably that's true. Second observation about Paul's definition of covetousness is that the reason he he says that it is idolatry and not like all idolatry, but that covetousness in and of itself is idolatry, is because the very thing that we covet is the all-consuming point of what we worship, and therefore it is our idol. You are an idolater when you covet, because the thing that you covet is your idol. You see, one who is addicted to pornography is not primarily a pervert. They are primarily an idolater. They are worshiping that which they are seeking after. Same thing of a person who spends endless hours gaming. Their sin is not primarily that they are a waster of time. It's that they are an idolater. Same thing with a person who is greedy and desires more and more money. It's not so much that they are greedy, it's that they are at the very heart an idolater. They are seeking and worshiping that dollar bill. The third thing I'd like you to note from Paul's definition of covetousness, and this might have been what gripped Paul's heart in his unconditioned state, is that Paul discovered that there is a seriousness to coveting, violating the law of God in this sense, and that is that it carries with it the promise of God's wrath. And so you remember the hymn that we sometimes sing at Calvary. Remember the words which said, I think this is the second verse, by God's word at last my sin I learned, and then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. You see, here's Paul of Tarsus, and he is spiritually proud of himself. 
uh, just like the rich young ruler. Uh, he is thoroughly acquainted with the law of Moses and he thinks that he's keeping it. One day, for some reason, he starts to meditate upon the Ten Commandments and he reads, thou shalt have no other God before me. And he says, well, that's not a problem for me at all. Lord Yahweh is my one and only true God. I do not have any idols. And don't make any graven images. I wouldn't dare have a graven image. And do not take the Lord's name in vain. Take the Lord's name in vain. I don't even use the Lord's name in vain, much less misuse the Lord's name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is the one I keep with the most amount of strictness. I do not travel farther than I need to travel. I, 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 I am a rester and a worshiper on the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. Check, I've got that one. Do not murder. Well, I will kill Christians, but that's not technically murder. I'm doing that for the glory of God, so I'm not a murderer. Do not commit adultery. I'm not an adulterer. Do not steal. I've never taken anything that didn't belong to me. Do not bear false witness. I am a truth teller. Do not covet. And he is silenced within his own heart. His mouth is stopped. He stops congratulating himself. He is guilty before God and he knows it and he has no defense. You don't get it until you get it. When that command came to him, when he was meditating upon it, he got it and he started to think of all of the things that he unlawfully lusted after, his discontentment, his jealousy, his envy, his greed, his thanklessness, his coveting silenced him. So what did he do? He did the same thing that you and I do. He continued to put on the charade. He continued to look good on the outside. Outwardly, everyone was praising him. He was advancing beyond all of his brethren in terms of climbing the ladder of success as a Pharisee. But inwardly, for the first time, he knows what sin is. Is the law sin? Absolutely not. No chance, no can do. But the specific law, thou shalt not covet, taught Paul what sin is. You see, it is possible to have a PhD in homardiology, which is a fancy way of saying the doctrine of sin. You quite literally could get a PhD in that and at the same time still not know what sin is. You don't get it until you get it. And so I'm asking you today, do you get it? Do you know that sin is bad and that you are a sinner and that you are bad? Do you see, do you feel yourself as a guilty sinner? You don't get it until you get it. And Paul is saying in verse seven, because of the commandment, thou shalt not covet, I got it. Verse 8, Romans 7, verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, or if you are using the King James, all manner of concupiscence, 
For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul explains that even though the law is not sin, sin uses or sin employs the law for its wicked purposes. Now, notice what Paul does here in speaking about sin. He animates it or personifies it. He, he gives sin human characteristics. Uh, uh, again, verse 8 uh, tells us that what was sin doing? Well, sin is an opportunist. Uh, sin is seizing something. Remember back in Genesis chapter 4, sin is also personified there. God has a conversation with Cain, and what does he say? He says, sin is crouching at your door, as if sin were a lion or a tiger. And sin here is seen to be, as I said, an opportunist. An opportunist. Um, taking that which is holy, the commandment, and seizing it, uh, sort of like as a bridgehead in a war, and then using that as a place from which to attack. Paul says that the, the commandment, you shall not covet, not only convinced me of an undeniable fact that I am a sinner, but Paul says it gets worse than that. Here's what sin does. It takes the law and it grabbed hold of that commandment and it weaponized it against me. So not only did Paul have a fallen nature, which was inclined to coveting, but it gets worse. He says, then somehow sin takes a hold of that commandment and, 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 and says to me, the law says, do not covet. And sin says, thank you very much. I'm going to use that law in order to produce not only coveting in you, but concupiscence, every manner of coveting, hyper coveting. It is the gasoline on the fire. As we look back at Romans chapter 7, verse 5, which we studied last week, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. It is the forbidden fruit that supposedly tastes the sweetest. That's the syndrome that's being spoken of here. And so we want something, and simply because we are told we cannot have it, that is what moves us into action to want it even more. St. Augustine speaks in his book, Confessions, about when he was a little boy, and he would be stealing pears, not because he wanted the pears, uh, because he would take the pears and he would feed them to the pigs. But he writes that he did it because he wanted the pleasure of disobeying the law. That's the way we are. Mark Twain said it this way. He spoke of uh, mules, and Mark Twain says, you know, that if a mule knows what you want him to do, he will do just the opposite. And then Mark Twain goes on to moralize it, and he says that he himself is, is like a mule. He's speaking here of mulishness being like a mule. Uh, a mule is not only stubborn, stubborn as an old mule, but a mule is actually defiant. I, you will not tell me what to do, and whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do the opposite. That is what sin does with the law, and that is the way we are when we hear the law. Sin in and of itself, uh, the law in and of itself is not sin. But when we as sinners read it, our natural tendency is to break it. Why? Because of our mulishness. 
In verse 8, he says, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Leon Morris, who was a Bible commentator from Australia who lived from 1914 to 2006, has written an excellent commentary on the book of Romans, says this about sin lying dead apart from the law. He says, the law is aimed at our good, but it is quite possible for us to view it as the limitation of our freedom. Without something to rebel against, there could be no rebels, end quote. And he's absolutely right. Paul does not mean at the end of verse 8 that we won't sin without law. We will. What he's saying is, the law will awaken us to sin faster and further and more fervently. Let's look, please, at verse 9. Paul writes, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Alive here, uh, uh, alive here uh, means that Paul thought highly of himself. Um, Paul saying here, my conscience didn't bother me. I was alive. I was very satisfied with my own religiosity. I, I was content with my own morality. I, I was alive. I was a Pharisee. I was fat, dumb, and happy in my religiosity apart from the probing work of the law. But then the commandment, that commandment, thou shalt not covenant, covet showed up. And that was brought to my attention. And when I got it, I got it. And when I got it, it gripped my heart and it convinced me of my guilt and, 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 and it shredded my conscience and it convicted me of my sin and it frightened me concerning my standing with God. And when that happened, sin, which was playing possum, revived, sprang to life and I died. When he says here, I died, he's not saying I died physically, seeing as how he is alive when he writes this. And he doesn't mean that he died spiritually, seeing as how he is already dead spiritually. He doesn't mean that he died eternally, seeing as how when he writes this, he's not in hell. But when he says, I died, it means my inflated, distorted, overestimation estimation of myself and my morality was put to death. I came to see that in reality, I am a guilty sinner and I was miserable and I was undone. Now, please be careful here. This is not the point at which Paul is converted. He's not saved until later. This is the point that he comes under conviction. You can be under conviction for a long time before you are converted. This is the point that he comes under conviction. Remember what Jesus said to him when he actually was converted. He says, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. You know that what you're doing is wrong. I can no longer pat myself on the back with sincerity. That's what Paul is saying. I was dead. Again, let me quote Leon Morris. To realize that we are not good and decent people in God's sight is a death. It marks the end of self-confidence, self-satisfaction, and self-reliance, it is a death, end quote. And I ask you, are you dead? Verse 10, Romans 7, 10. 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question, in what sense did the commandment promise life? I think that's pretty simple. If you keep the law perfectly, you will be right with God. You remember when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer, which is a true answer, is if you would have eternal life, keep the commandments. Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. I mean, straightforward. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, all you have to do is be perfect. Keep the commandments and you'll be fine. At which point the rich young ruler should have said, that's ridiculous. I mean, I can't do that. At which point Jesus would have said, aha, you get it. And he would have pointed the man to himself. But since the man goes on to argue about his own morality, Jesus then has to prove to him that he is not moral. But Jesus' upfront statement is, what do I have to do to be saved? You just have to be perfect. You just have to keep the law. That is the sense in which the law promises life. So Paul knew exactly that he was not in a good standing with God. He knew that the law promised life, but he also knew that he had no means by which to obtain it. I love to go to county fairs and to carnivals and just to walk around the midway and to watch people as they participate in games of chance. Um, How about this carnival game where there is a ladder rope And the prize is visible. The prize is at the top of the ladder. And all you have to do is balance yourself and climb to the top of that. And it's yours. There's there's no trick. There's no catch to it. You get to the top. It's there. It's yours. Which, by the way, side note, um, why would you even want what is at the top of that? It is... It is so filled with disease. What are you going to do with it? Just go to Toys R Us and get a clean one, one that you would pick out. But 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 why? Okay, that's not the point. The point is you stand there and you watch person after person with confidence get on, and what happens to all of them? They flip off. The promise, however, is not invalid. If you get to the top, it is yours. Well, the Jews operated in the system and with the promise of eternal life in the law. And if they could only keep it perfectly, then they would get there. Through an awareness of covetousness and then amplified covetousness, which sin used the law to do in Paul's life, Paul realized that he was disqualified. You can't climb that ladder, that rope ladder. And it proved to be death to him. Which brings us to verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Once again, sin is personified as an opportunist. And sin uses the tool of the commandment, the commandment thou shalt not covet, to deceive Paul and to kill him. Uh, The imagery here harkens back to the Garden of Eden where Satan used something to get to Eve. What did he use? 
We use the very law of God. He twisted it. He contradicted it. He redefined it for her. He changes the law about eating the forbidden fruit. Uh, Eve buys the lie. She is deceived. She eats and she dies. Sin is always a liar. Sin is always deceptive. It never delivers what it actually promises. And notice how deceptive it is. It uses something very good, something, in fact, that is perfect. It uses the law of God to accomplish its wicked purposes. You see, the law didn't kill Paul. Sin did. Sin uses the law as the murder weapon. And when, 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 when the text says, it killed me, doesn't mean, once again, that he was rendered spiritually dead. It means that I lost hope and I lost confidence in myself. And that's a horrible thing, isn't it? No, that's not a horrible thing. That's a wonderful thing. So notice the irony and the paradox of what's happening in the passage. For now Paul has lost hope and he has lost confidence in himself. He is at this point for the first time forced to look elsewhere for life and peace. That which sin meant for evil, God meant for good. So as long as, as, as Paul was alive, meaning confident and satisfied in himself, there was no reason for him to seek righteousness anywhere else. But when through the law, specifically the prohibition about coveting, he realized that he had no righteousness, he then died. And that state caused him to look somewhere else. I was speaking with a man one time who, <clears throat> from everything I had known about this man, um, I had known him probably about 15 years. And I thought him to be a very good Christian. Outwardly, he was very moral. He was somebody that I looked up to. I like I would spend time with him and I would <clears throat> not really, I, I, I mean, this isn't really true, but, but more or less, I just wondered if he had a sin nature because I never observed him sinning. He was just a great guy. He was just a great guy. Then it was revealed that there was some sin in his private life, which was very gross and very immoral. And I wasn't shocked because I understand that, that this can happen to anyone. So, so I wasn't shocked in that sense. But as I was talking with him afterward and I was trying to encourage him, I said to him, I said, listen, you are in a better spot right now than you have ever been because now you actually possess no righteousness. You never did anyway, but now cat's out of the bag and I know that you don't have any righteousness and you know that you don't have any righteousness and God has always known that you don't have any righteousness. So guess what? You are 100% dependent on grace and that is the place where you want to be. In fact, that is the only place where you can be to find forgiveness from the Lord because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
his sin was exposed and therefore all he had was grace. And the fact of the matter is all he ever had grace, all he ever had was grace and that's all any of us ever have anyway. So in light of this death to self-righteousness that Paul experienced, we can come to a conclusion in verse 12. And remember a long time ago, I asked you to meet me in verse 12. Well, that's where we are right now. I hope that you traveled with me, but even if you did not travel with me, hear the conclusion of the matter, verse 12. So in light of the fact that the law strips you of your righteousness, so here's what we can conclude. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Holy. It is the written standard of a perfect holy God. That is the law. The commandment is specifically within that law, thou shalt not covet. That's a part of that law, and that is also holy, meaning it is sacred, it is set apart, it is pure, there is no flaw in it. It is commanding us not to covet, and that in and of itself is holy because it comes from a holy God. And then Paul says it is righteous. In other words, it's fair, it's just, it's reasonable. It's not twisted, it's not perverse, it's upright, it's equitable. The demand not to covet is reasonable. This world is filled with unjust laws and unjust systems. Well, this isn't one of them. In fact, you won't find one of them in the law of Moses because they are just. And then he says that they are good. They are good in and of themselves, and they are good for you, and they are good for society. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's it's good. And maybe this is why when the self-righteous rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good master, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? Before Jesus even starts to answer his question, he says, I think we need to define our terms first. You just called me good. And you just called the law good. I'm curious, why do you employ that adjective? Because you know there's nobody good but God. Now, Jesus is God and Jesus is good. But the rich young ruler doesn't know that. In fact, the rich young ruler thinks that he himself is good and the rich young ruler does not know the definition of good. But Jesus wants to just get that on the table and say, what we are going to be talking about here today is what is good. You use that word, do you even know what it means? Then Jesus brings the law into the discussion in order to demonstrate to the rich young ruler that he is not good. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. Do you know what the word means? Do you understand that you are not? Ironically, the rich young ruler is right the first time. Jesus is good and the law is good. And he proved that he is good. Jesus did by perfectly keeping the law of God and fulfilling every bit of the holy, righteous, and good law of God God is good, and therefore God is the one that defines what is good, and he communicates this good in his law, and he demonstrates what this good is in the sending of his perfect son who perfectly keeps his good law. 
So you see that even through the law, uh, one is not capable of being saved. But don't conclude that the law is bad. On the contrary, Romans 7, 7 through 12 proves that the law is good. Six observations as we close. Number one, repent of your covetousness. How? Well, first of all, because it is a private sin and it is one which is hard to detect and you can mask it from everyone. And I doubt that anybody's ever going to come up to you and ask you about it. You know, I'm almost 63 years old. Nobody has ever come up to me and asked me about my covetousness. Please don't. No, uh, but, 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 but understand, do, do we have conversations with one another where we talk about that? Because it is private, you're going to have to deal with it with the Holy Spirit. As you do, realize that it is idolatry and realize that it does merit damnation. Realize that you must repent. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, repent, be honest, examine yourself, be thankful for what you have. Be thankful for the providence of God that has given you what you currently possess. Be content and turn from that sin and be content in the riches of Christ. Repent of your covetousness. Closely related, number two, the desire for sin is in and of itself sin. You see, the Roman Catholic doctrine of concupiscence, which means just the inner desire for sin, which Remember, I, I talked about St. Augustine earlier, uh, about him stealing those pears. Well, St. Augustine is the one that got the church in a big mess by talking about concupiscence, the inner desire, and saying that the inner desire is not actually sin. In fact, Roman Catholic theologians will say that's actually a good thing because it teaches you how to wrestle against sin by struggling it. It doesn't actually become sin until you commit it. Whereas the fact of the matter is doing things which are bad are bad and wanting to do things which are bad are also bad. There's a lot of discussion today concerning homosexuality and homosexuals will be granted a pass and they will say it is okay for you to feel the way that you feel as long as you do not act upon it. I will grant it is better to not act upon it, but that doesn't mean that it is wrong to feel it. In and of itself, it is wrong to feel it. We do not become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And the 10th commandment gets to the heart and says both the desire and the action are sinful. And therefore, See observation number one and repent of your covetousness, whether you're acting upon it or not. Number three, sin and Satan will use anything and anyone to bring you down. Sin is an opportunist. Sin is crouching. Sin plays possum. Sin springs to life and uses the holy law of God to attack people. If sin would use the law of God to attack people, Sin will use anything. 
Sin is shameless. He'll use your wife or your husband, your family, your friends. Sin will use your worship. It will use your Bible. It will use anything it can to get you. And therefore, you need to be on your toes because you have an enemy. That enemy is going to use anything in the room to beat you. So be sober. Be vigilant for your adversary. The devil roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. Observation number four, God will take wicked devices of the enemy and turn them for good for his glory. Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Sin used the law to kill Paul's hope and confidence. Sin was playing right into the hand of God because it was then that Paul realized that he was bad and he needed someone other than himself to save, to be saved. God used Paul's spiritual despair to convict him of sin, which eventually brought him to salvation. God uses seemingly bad things to bring about good. Very quickly, I think you know that Peter Nicotra has two blood clots in his lungs. How did he discover this? Well, he was supposed to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles to buy a car from someone, but it was discovered that all of the paperwork was not in line which is a bad thing. So Peter said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the doctor. But he would not have gone to the doctor had the paperwork been correct. He goes to the doctor, the blood clots are discovered, and thank God he did not get on an airplane which he was scheduled to get on. Why? Because two days earlier he discovered those blood clots which he would not have discovered had the paperwork for the vehicle been in line. God will take that which is bad and he will turn it for his good. Number five, you must die to yourself. Have you come to an end of your self-righteousness? You see, it's very possible for you to agree with everything that I said in this sermon about the goodness of the law and the sinfulness of man, and yet you not see yourself as the one who is bad and not be broken over your sin. You don't get it until you get it. And what I'm telling you is you have to get it. Paul knew the 10th commandment before he could walk. He even believed it. I'm sure he might've even taught it to others, but he never interacted with it until he interacted with it. You don't get it until you get it. And if you get it, you will come to the end of yourself. You will come to the conclusion that I am undone. You see, what I'm saying here is you can't be saved until you're lost and you can't be lost until you realize that you are hopeless and that you have nothing to offer God. You are a guilty sinner. Do you know that? Have you died to yourself? And then finally, there is hope for guilty sinners at the cross of Christ. Earlier, I quoted the first part of the second verse of the sin at Calvary. By God's word, at last my sin I learned, and then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. I didn't finish it. The verse finishes out by saying, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. For mercy there was great and grace was free, and pardon there was multiplied to me. And there my burdened soul found liberty, At Calvary, 
The only thing the law can do for you is tell you your need. You get an MRI and you meet with the radiologist and the radiologist says to you, you have cancer and you say, help me. The radiologist says, I'm just taking pictures here. I can't help you. What about that expensive machine that you just put me into? Can't help. That machine is the law. It can expose you, but it can't help you. And what you need is a surgeon to come in and remove the cancer, and that surgeon is Jesus Christ. That law drives you to Christ. Jesus can help you because he died in place of sinners like you and me. He died for our sins. He died for our sin of coveting. He died for our sins and he rose again. The gospel is of first importance. You know why he did it? He did it because he loves us. And now you can be saved by believing in Jesus. Well, how do I do that? It's pretty simple. You just say, Jesus, I'm bad. And I know that I'm bad. And I feel that I'm bad. And I believe that you are good. And I believe that you love me. And I believe that you died for me. And I believe that you're alive. Help me, Jesus. Save me. And if you cry out to him, mercy there will be great and grace will be free. Jesus can help you. The law is good, but the law cannot save you. It just leads you to the end of yourself. We get to the end of yourself. That's where you find Jesus, the only one who can help you. All right, 173 down, 260 to go, which means what? Oh, means we're getting there. Father in heaven, thank you for Paul sharing his heart with us. Lord, his story is our story. We are guilty. Jesus is perfect. Oh God, please help us to rejoice in that and to live in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.